Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint. The best guest we could possibly have is the founder of this podcast, Mark Sisson. Hi, how are you? I'm great, Hell, How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for, for, for coming on your own podcast. Um, <laughs> exactly. Our users really love hearing from you. So, I, you know, one of the things is you, you've talked about so many concepts over the years, and I kind of wanted to put some of my favorite, most interesting ones and in that, that people are really fascinated about and kind of do a rapid fire of, of some of these concepts. Um, one, one of the things that's really interesting – that I'd like you to talk about is one time I was talking with you and, you know, back in the day, I was always confused because I was like calling personal trainer friends. I'm like, so what's the deal? I eat a banana an hour before the workout, but then within two hours after I eat, I have to eat protein. And I was all confused. And then I remember you being like, look, when you are a fat burner and you're in this state, those rules don't apply. So can you kind of talk about with regards to workouts and strength efforts, you know, highlighting, comparing those two scenarios, you know, why there needs to be those kind of rules when you're a sugar burner, and you're carbohydrate dependent, and you're working out, and then why those rules don't apply when you're fat adapted. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense, but you're going to have to endure a, a rather lengthy response if that's okay. Great. No, that's what I want. <laughs> Rapid fire here. Um, yeah, so you know, I've gone from uh, kind of uh, deriding, you know, the concept of a sugar burner in favor of being a fat burning beast uh, uh, over the years. Initially with paleo, and then primal, and then through keto, and I've ar- arrived at a space where I think what we want to talk about is metabolic flexibility. We want to talk about about the the point at which your body is so adapted. Uh, to deriving energy from whatever substrate is available, that it doesn't matter, that you feel great no matter what you've eaten, as long as that list of foods, you know, has 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 still eliminated crap and junk and and whatever. So uh, if we are a sugar burner, if we've grown up uh, carbohydrate dependent, uh, our access to different fuel substrates is limited. We basically are pretty good at burning sugar. We can burn the glucose in our bloodstream, we can burn the glycogen stored in our muscles. Uh, we pretty much need to live meal to meal. We're not very good at accessing the body fat that we have stored on our bodies, and we're not very good at combusting the fat that we consume in our meals. Uh, because we eat such large amounts of carbohydrate uh, in the standard American diet, uh, and that you know still is most people in this country, we have this issue, which you and I and all of us in this community know well, that we, we sort of have this insulin roller coaster that we that we suffer from on a daily basis, almost on a, on a meal-to-meal basis. You eat some food, it's got carbohydrate, the carbohydrate causes the insulin to rise, the insulin causes the you know excess glucose in the bloodstream to get sequestered into the into the muscle cells first. If there's no more room, then they go into the fat cells. Uh, all other excess calories are converted to fat, and over time, you, you tend to add stored body fat, um, which is kind of ironic because while stored body fat is this amazing fuel that we could burn in the right situation, because we are eating so much carbohydrate and because we are generating so much insulin, we, we lock the fat in the fat cells and we can never even take that amazing, beautiful, wonderful fuel out of storage from the fat cells and combust it. And because of that, 
we depend on carbohydrate every single meal of every single day. Now, you can be a fairly well-adapted athlete and still be a sugar burner and still have this, this need to continuously supply your body with a new fresh supply of, of, of carbohydrate to replenish the glucose in your bloodstream and to replenish the glycogen in your muscles. So you could be out there working out every single day and you could be um, you know, burning a lot of calories, but most of those calories that you're burning up doing your work are stored glycogen and very, very little of it uh, as a percentage is coming from fat. Now, again, you can get away with that. I got away with it for 20 years as an endurance athlete. I just ate, you know, thousands of calories a day and thousands of grams of carbs every day. And I never really got that good at burning fat. Now, the what happens is in that context, if you go work out, let's just say, say you go do a, a long run, you burn off all these carbohydrate calories, these gly this glycogen, and a little bit of fat, and you get back and you're so damn hungry, your body wants you to replenish the lost carbohydrate calories. The body wants you to replenish the lost glycogen. And so you get, you, you have to have a post-workout meal, particularly if you're somebody who's going to do it again tomorrow, the next day. Um, now, if we talk about what you do in the gym, if you're lifting weights, heavy weights in the gym, same thing, lifting weights, that's even more glycolytic than doing running. Uh, those weights uh, are causing your body to burn off the glycogen in your muscles. And sure enough, when you get home, you're hungry and you're going to want to replenish that glycogen. You're going to want to restore that glycogen, partly on the, on the idea that you're just wickedly hungry. Uh, also on the idea that you're, the rest of your body hasn't gotten used to burning fat in the off hours and it hasn't gotten good at burning fat. And then ultimately, because you're thinking you're going to go work out again the next day and you're going to need more of this glycogen and you, and you won't be able to rely on your, your body fat stores to have anything to do with replenishing energy and keeping you uh, energized. Now, it gets really tricky when you say, well, um, I got that. I'm a sugar burner. Uh, I burn a lot of calories. I still look pretty good. And I think I'm going to skip a meal. Then when you haven't gotten good at burning fat, when you haven't become metabolically flexible, like we're going to talk about, when you're only dependent on carbohydrate, then when you skip a meal, oh my gosh, then the body goes into kind of a, a you know, a emergency state and the brain goes, wait a minute, where's my glucose going to come from? And, and it sends signals to the adrenals to secrete cortisol. And the cortisol goes and literally tears down muscle tissue to make amino acids from the muscle tissue that it can send to the liver to become glucose to keep this whole process going again. Aha, so, so that's where the, old, the catabolic nature comes in of a sugar burner. This, mm -hmm. Bingo. That's where this whole thing about, well, I'll go cannibal on myself if I skip a meal. If I don't have my post-workout whatever... Um, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll ruin all the work I did in the gym because I won't have any of this, uh, you know, I'll lose muscle tissue. Um, and, and that's the assumption that not only bodybuilders had, but, but endurance athletes had, uh, trainers had. And that's why in the eighties and nineties and, and the early two thousand, you know, you saw so many people walking around with their Tupperware full of little meals that had some protein, some carbohydrate, not much fat. Cause God forbid they skipped two and a half or three hours. They went, they went, you know, any length of time without eating and they would go into quote cannibal mode and, and, or, you know, and, and basically catabolize their own tissue. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a doubly frustrating concept for a lot of people to, to kind of understand because, uh, because it's, it, it is true that if you skip those meals under that context of being a sugar burner, you would go into cannibal mode and it would be deleterious for you to not eat a post workout meal. 
Now, let's fast forward to the new technology that those of us in the paleo primal keto uh, world have, and, and now intermittent fasting world, have kind of developed in the last decade, and that is this. If you develop metabolic flexibility, if you train yourself to be good at deriving energy from the fat on your plate of food, the fat on your hips, your thighs, your belly, uh, the glucose in your bloodstream, the glycogen in your muscles, uh, the the keto the ketones that your liver will make in the absence of of, of glucose. Um, if you become adept and efficient at deriving energy from all these different substrates, it doesn't matter where they came from, uh, whether it was your body and stored body fat or a plate of food. Um, it didn't matter really whether they came from fats or carbohydrate or protein because you become so good, so efficient at deriving energy from these different substrates that you're able to go about your day not being hungry, not needing to eat, not being in any sort of cannibal mode because your body knows exactly how to derive not just energy from fat and, and, and to combust it in the muscles, whether you're at rest or at work, but also your brain, uh, your heart, uh, some, some of the other major parts of your body have learned to, uh, to exist and thrive on ketones. And so the body says, look, uh, if there is a shortage of carbohydrate, not a problem. Uh, we've built the metabolic machinery to burn fat. We have lots of machinery that will burn fat all the time. Uh, we have this amazing organ, the liver, that will create up to, and get this, L. I I don't know if you knew this, 750 calories a day worth of ketones if necessary. Wow. 750 calories a day worth of ketones if necessary. Now, typically it's not necessary because typically – um, the brain really only requires about 500 calories a day on the average of most people. And if most of that can come from ketones, um, and by the way, the, the brain's use of ketones is a very steady uh, usage. It's not, it doesn't have these wild swings that, that have to do with when you ate or how much work you were doing in the gym or any of this other stuff. The brain's just like, like kind of cruising along saying, this is my energy requirement and, and we can get some from uh, we can get some of it from, from ketones and we can get some of it from the carbohydrate that we eat or that if that's in the glycogen that's stored in the liver uh, or even from, from gluconeogenesis if need be. Um, so what that means is now back to the question. Okay, so now I've set this. No, this I've, is great. I've, I've, I've established this context, but now back to the question of, okay, okay, so what does that mean to somebody who's looking to go to the gym and work out? Well, I would say, okay, well, what are you trying to accomplish? Now, if you are uh, trying to enhance your fat burning capability and you're going to do a long, easy uh, uh, aerobic workout. Uh, maybe it's a long walk. Hell, maybe it's two hour bike ride at a, at a fairly uh, high output. Most of that energy over time is going to come from fat because you become so good at, at burning stored body fat. Very little of it is going to come from from the glycogen in your muscles. But whatever does come from the glycogen in your muscles you don't need to fill those up before the ride and you don't need to top them off immediately after the ride because the body still starts to replenish the glycogen in your muscles whether or not you consume a post-workout meal. The body is still going to – it just – the difference is it's probably not going to completely replenish all the glycogen in your muscles within 24 hours. Okay, so that's sort of the bad news. But the, but along with that bad news is like, well, okay, really, you're going to go out and do it again tomorrow and, and again the next day and again the next day. 
So if you if you plan your workout strategy around your, knowing that your body is, you know, it has has this ability to replenish glycogen, does not need to carbo load every day to top off those stores at the end of a workout because it's it's not like again you're not going to it's not like you're not going to replenish the glycogen source you are it's just it'll take a little bit longer but so what because maybe you're going to do that workout again in i don't know 2 days or 3 days or 4 days or whatever so you don't need to replenish glycogen stores now if you do replenish glycogen stores if you do have a post workout meal that's fine that's great. And, you know, if you do plan to go another two hours or do something hard again tomorrow, then that would be a method of saying, OK, you know what? I think I'll I think I will cheat a little bit and um, and I'll top off my glycogen stores by having a, an extra piece of sweet potato tonight or, you know, a, a, a whole bag of cauliflower rice with uh, some butter on top or whatever. So well, and I remember this is, you know, and this goes back to and I remember I asked you this a couple of years ago because I <clears throat> I said, you know, I'm I'm fasted in the morning, I go work out and then I'm not hungry after, do I have to eat? And you were like, "No, you don't." <laughs> not only do you not have to eat, if you're not hungry, don't freaking eat. That's right. You know, this is this is you kind of training your body to be even better than you already are right. at burning fat. And even better than you already are at making ketones on demand and using them in your muscles and brain and not pissing them out in in your urine or expelling them in your breath. You know, that's the other thing that people kind of mistake about ketones. They think, well, you know, Mark, uh, I just can't stay in ketosis all the time. And I'm like, well, good, you don't need to. Um, the term ketosis is in and of itself an indication that you're not doing it right. And, and I, whoa, Mark, what'd you just say? Well, osis means an excess. <clears throat> ketosis means there's too many ketones. If you're doing this right, your body's just make, making just enough ketones to keep you going uh, at the level that is efficient and effective and painless and energetic. Uh, and that's a beautiful thing. And so you see a lot of people that you and I know who have been keto for 10 years, right? They've been like, and how would you define that? I said, well, these are people who on average get less than 30 grams of carbs a day. Or if they get 60 or 80 grams or 100 grams of carbs a day, they eat once a day or twice a day. So they go 18 to 24, 22 hours without eating. Um, either way, they are living a keto lifestyle, but they're not in, a lot of them are not in ketosis because their body has become so good at, at dealing with this lack of carbohydrate and this lack of calories that the body just says, okay, I'll burn some fat because that's what I need to do to get me through the day. It's easy. It's painless. I have all the energy I need. I'm good at burning fat. I've built the metabolic machinery. I have all of the mitochondria. I need to do that. And I'll only make the ketones necessary to keep my brain going because my, my, my muscles don't even need ketones. My muscles are so good at burning fat up until 90, 95% of full output that they don't even need ketones. And, and the body goes into this little... Uh, exercise where it spares ketones from the muscle tissue and saves them for the brain tissue. And as I said before, if the liver only needs to make a little bit of ketones steadily throughout the day and doesn't need to make gobs of ketones that it, that spills into the into the bloodstream, which then doesn't get utilized and then gets pissed out, that's that's wasteful. And the body does not like to waste energy. The body wants to be efficient. It wants to be flexible. It wants to it wants to have all of this this um, elegant system working perfectly. And so you'll see people who've been, who've been keto for 10 years, they won't even register on a ketone blood meter as being in ketosis. 
they might show a 0.3 or a 0.4 millimolar. And, and isn't that ironic that, that the most keto people you know most spend most of their time not even in ketosis, but that's because the name we gave it, ketosis, right. indicates an excess of, of ketones. And I don't want an excess of ketones. I just want the right amount of ketones, damn it. That's perfect. So, yeah, so, so it's, a, it's a really – so if, when you develop this metabolic flexibility, a whole new realm of possibilities opens up. And I've talked about this before, and I'll talk about it again right now. So the other reason that you might not want to eat right after a workout um, – and again, the, the reason in the old days that you would was to immediately replenish your glycogen because you, so, you wanted to go out and do it again the next day, right? Which is kind of crazy, but that's, if you're, if you're an endurance athlete and you're running 100 miles a week or you're riding your bike 300 miles a week, there's some logic to that. Um, but what happens when you do that is that there is some raise, raising of insulin because you, you're eating a fair amount of carbohydrate after the workout. Well, what we know about insulin is that it's not only a, a, a nutrient storage hormone, so it will effectively store the glycogen that you're looking to store rapidly, but it also, uh, insulin shuts off testosterone and growth hormone. Uh, and so some of the reasons that you want to go work hard in the gym or even do uh, hard sprint workouts is to get this pulse of growth hormone and testosterone. And so if you don't eat after a meal, that pulse of testosterone and growth hormone stays long enough to do its work. If you eat a high carbohydrate meal, within an hour, say, of doing the workout, the insulin that, that is generated as a result of that can blunt the effect of the testosterone and the growth hormone. Does that make sense? It's perfect. Um, and that kind of, I want to lead in there to another topic, which is, you know, when we become metabolically flexible and efficient and we do some intermittent fasting, let's talk about this concept of autophagy and why we want our bodies to eat themselves. Can you explain in layman's terms how this happens? What's beneficial about this time that you always say when we're not eating all the good shiz is happening? Yep. Yeah. It's really quite interesting. Um, it's almost like eating is like a necessary evil, a necessary pit stop that we have to make along the, the, the road of life. Uh, and that while we're doing it, and maybe that's why we're wired to, to have all of these, gustatory pleasure hedonistic responses to food because it uh evolution sort of made it you know um a, a real requirement that we not just you know graze our food and move on but that we that we <laughs> that we that we slam our food down with great delight um and and gave you know nature gave us all of these sensory inputs the color of food the smell of food the taste of food it's almost like it nature wants us to eat a lot and have sex a lot because those are like two of the most important things that nature thinks we ought to do to pass our genetic material along to the next generation, right? And, and because so much of our evolution uh, was during times of uh, famine, a dearth of nutrients, uh, we, you know, we are developed, we, we, we have this wiring, and, and Rob Wolf wrote about it very elegantly in his book, Wired to Eat. We have this wiring that, that wants us um, to, to overeat. Uh, so much of our uh, evolutionary experience was with not much food around. And one of the efficiencies, in addition to us being this closed system where we could live off of our stored body fat and live off of uh, the ketones generated by the, um, the liver, uh, and 
um, kick into motion an amazing epigenetic um, uh, situation where the body re uh, retains amino acids and reuses amino acids. It's really a, an amazing closed loop that we have. One of the other things that kicks in is this kind of housekeeping mechanism where the body kind of, if you gave it a brain, if you gave every cell a brain, the cell would say, well, look, let's see, there's, there's, you know, when there's lots of nutrients around, um, there's plenty for everybody. So I will divide, I will become two cells and then I'll become four cells because there's plenty of nutrients to have all of us, you know, thrive with these nutrients. And, and after all, our mission in life is to pass this genetic material on, along to the next generation. So, so from the point of view of a cell faced with a, a, a ton of nutrition and, and food everywhere, um, on, and all the time, it makes sense that the cell would go, Hey, let's just divide now. Um, conversely, a cell in the absence of any nutrition would go, well, Jesus, there's not only enough, uh, not enough food for two of us, there's barely enough food for me. There's, I have to start to uh, economize. I have to kind of, uh, uh, you know, to use the current metaphor, I think I'll, I'll uh, go buy a bunch of toilet paper and I'll hibernate. Uh, <laughs> so the, the cell says, well, uh, this is a good time to do some housekeeping. Um, I can actually... Uh, take some of the damaged proteins and damaged fats and damaged organelles in the cytosol, in the, inside the cell, and I can actually consume those and get energy from those. And so that's part of this concept of autophagy, auto meaning self and phagy meaning heat. So is your body using the crappy junk as fuel? It's like burning it and getting it out of your body, but using it as a yeah, fuel? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's part of it. And then another part of it is, is this is an opportunity for the, the cell to look around and say, you know, I've got some, some damaged DNA. Um, this would be a good time to maybe see about repairing some of that uh, DNA. And so we have, we have some genes uh, that, that whose sole job is to like kind of proofread. We actually have a gene called the proofreader gene. Proofread the, the DNA and go, ah, you know, I, I'm not liking this, this particular thing. It's like, you know, if you had a car with a, with a, with a, you know, a broken muffler and a, and a bent tailpipe, uh, and a ding in the door. And you, and again, you were hibernating. You said, well, I think I'll take this time to kind of fix the door ding and, and straighten out the muffler and, and do some things there, work on the engine a little bit. So that's what the body does in the absence of food, because again, the, these are all just signals. Food is information. So food itself is information. Lack of food is also information. And with that, with that particular information, the lack of food, the cell has a particular pattern that upregulates certain genes and downregulates other genes. In the uh, presence of lots of food, uh, different genes get turned on. And then the cell goes, you know, like I said, well, maybe it's time to replicate. Hell, we, you know, we could, we could speed up this whole aging process and get this passing the genetic material to the next generation thing on, uh, you know, we could get it over with and, and, and speed the whole process up. So you kind of have to think, in terms of two strands of, you know, of originally of RNA in the, in the primordial ooze and ultimately DNA that are looking to replicate um, and how we have kind of evolved as a mechanism to make that happen. And then we have to think, OK, how can I slow that process down? How can I, you know, how can I enjoy the time that I'm here the most by understanding how the body works and and for lack of a better term, high, you know, hacking that process. And fasting is a way of doing that. Fasting is a way of saying, um, okay, this is, I'm going to artificially create um, a dearth of food, a lack of food, 
Um, and my body's going to go into the programming that started millions of years ago, probably hundreds of millions of years ago, and that my body knows, like all of the information is there in my cells, and my body knows exactly what to do in the absence of food, and it's all good. It's all contemplated to improve my health, not to make me less healthy. Okay, let's talk about organ reserve. This is the one thing that you mentioned, you and Brad, when you were, you know, doing an interview about Keto for Life. I took that video and showed it to my parents because they go for a walk every day, which is lovely, but they're not into the weights. And in order to impress the importance of this upon them, I showed them what you had to say about organ reserve. Of course, now my mom is like, oh, well, Mark says it. <laughs> so now, now it's legit, not you, um, even though everything I've learned is, is from you. But so let's, let's talk about organ reserve. I think this is so fascinating and the way that you describe it. And I think this is going to kick a lot of people's asses into gear into understanding why weight-bearing activities are important. Well, it's never been more important than it is right now during this, you know, COVID-19 experience. Uh, because what we're seeing, uh, particularly among the people that are dying, uh, in addition to a general uh, metabolic dysfunction, uh, most people that are most susceptible are either uh, old uh, and therefore don't have a lot of organ reserve, and we'll talk about what that means, or they have diabetes or they're obese, or they have, uh, you know, chronic uh, pulmonary issues, COPD, or they have, um, you know, a number of other metabolic issues that make them susceptible, not just because the virus tends to go to those places that are, we just spoke about, but also uh, when you are put on the brink of, of death, uh, when your lungs can't function or your heart can't function or your kidneys can't function at the end of the day, it doesn't matter which one couldn't function. It was the, it was the weakest link that took you down. And so you'll see that some people who, who die of this particular, uh, strain of coronavirus. And by the way, it happens all the time. And every year with tens of thousands of Americans and millions of people around the world with regular flu as well. And that is, uh, that, that, while the flu kind of got in there, it was their response to the flu that took them down. And so some people die of pneumonia. Some people die of heart, heart failure. Uh, some people die of renal fit kidney failure. Um, some people uh, die of liver failure. Um, and it was always kind of at the, a, a, as you do the analysis, the weakest link to which they succumbed. So organ reserve basically describes the amount of um, capacity that all your organs are currently working at. So if you take a healthy Olympian uh, who is, you know, in their 20s or 30s, that Olympian, um, and let's just say a, a decathlete or a top gymnast or something like that, that Olympian has strong muscles. The muscles uh, work, function very well. Uh, the heart has to pump forcefully to supply oxygen to those muscles. The liver has to provide uh, nutrients um, and particularly um, uh, glycogen to those muscles. Um, the lungs have to inspire forcefully to get enough oxygen so that the heart can pump. Uh, the kidneys, you know, have to clear the metabolites quickly so that the blood doesn't get over overwhelmed with metabolites. Uh, and as you look at the entire system, all of these things have to be worked. It's not just the muscles of these athletes that are working hard and well, it's, it's all the organs working at full capacity. Now, as we get older uh, and we tend not to work out, 
the body says, Jesus, you know, I don't, I don't really need to, I don't really need to keep up and use a lot of energy to keep all of these organ systems firing at 100% capacity because I'm never called upon to do max effort. Uh, and so the heart starts to go, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to beat that forcefully because um, they got this guy or gal is never doing sprints or we're never doing, um, you know, high intensity interval training. Um, the, the lungs say, well, I don't need to breathe that deeply because we don't need that much oxygen because the heart's not working that hard. Um, the bones are going, well, you know, there's not a lot of stress put on, on the place at which the muscles, uh, attach to the bone. So the bones go, well, I don't need to have bone density. I don't need to be that, that dense of bone. And so the bones go, well, you know, I'm, I don't need as much calcium as, as I, as I used to need. Uh, the liver says, well, you know, we, we, we don't need to really to, to work that hard. It's not a big deal. We can, we can clear whatever uh, amount of, uh, toxins are necessary and the same with the kidneys. And so as time goes by, people tend to act, they tend to atrophy in general, not just a particular muscle, but they tend to atrophy in general. And over the years, as we get in our fifties and sixties, the amount of activity that we engage in for most people declines as we get in our seventies and eighties, it declines even more. And now, uh, for the average American who hasn't gone to the gym and lifted weights or done some around amount of uh, mobility work. Um, and by the way, endurance training is just a small part of it. It's mostly the weights that we're talking about because it's mostly having the muscle tissue. That's the key. So when your parents go on a walk, that's great. They're, they're getting out there and they're breathing a little bit, but they're not even breathing hard enough to, to cause the lungs to expand fully. They're not breathing hard enough to, uh, or they're not walking hard enough to, um, uh, to have the heart have to go to max capacity. Uh, that's where. So it, so it kind of sounds like, you know, if you give everything a freaking vacation now, it's going to take an unwanted vacation when you l- most need them. For sure. And, and that's what happens with, with most people in this country. And so most people don't even go out for a walk, right? They just, they just sit there and they gain weight. And now they, because they gain weight, they're less inclined to move. And because they're less inclined to move, those organs all kind of just, again, they atrophy. They, the organs are just like, they don't care. They're like, well, if you're not giving us a reason to maintain all this expensive machinery, and when I say expensive machinery, I mean it takes it takes calories, it takes nutrients, it takes it takes work to keep those organ systems, those organ reserves up and running. And so when you talk about organ reserve, we're talking about what at what capacity your organs are working relative to when they were healthy and 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 at their strongest. So some people in their 80s you know, their heart might be at 15% of its capacity, maybe less. Um, and then that gets exacerbated by, by hardening of the arteries, uh, by narrowing of the arteries, uh, a number of other things. Their bone density might be a third of what it was when they were younger and stronger. Uh, the lungs might, you know, it, where you might have had a, you know, a five liter uh, lung volume. Now you have a 1.2 liter lung volume. So now what happens is, you get up in the middle of the night to take a leak because you haven't maintained your bladder and uh, you trip over the cat and you fall and you break your, and you, <laughs> and you break your hip and you break your hip because a, you couldn't catch yourself from falling when you tripped in the first place because you hadn't done the, the, the mobility and balance exercises. Uh, and two, you weren't strong enough to maybe take a couple of more steps before you went down. And three, because, because you hadn't done the work um, strengthening the muscles the bones were brittle and broke easily. 
So now you break a bone. Now you go to the hospital. And of course, now the, 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 the like all too common scenario is while you're in the hospital, you get, uh, you know, you get a, a, a hospital born infection, right? Which happens to a lot of people, or you just, you know, you're in bed for six weeks and you can't even roll over because your hip is broken. So now you get pneumonia. Now you get pneumonia and now because your lungs don't know how to, they don't work forcefully, you can't cough and expel the sputum. And the amount of, the, the amount of mucus that's in your lungs now has a, a, a much more dramatic effect because it doesn't take, you know, it's, now it's taking up whatever small space there was in your lungs. The heart, which hasn't beat forcefully for a long time, now is forced to start beating hard because the infection has put a strain on, on you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strain on the system and requires the heart to beat more forcefully. And, and it can't do it. So now you get uh, the potential for congestive heart failure. Um, quite often the kidneys will give out because of uh, certain metabolites there. And, and so you ultimately you die. And that's how like tens of thousands of people die every year from that exact scenario. Not necessarily tripping over the cat. Could have been the dog. Could have been, you know, whatever. But I, my point is the sort of old person breaking a bone and then that begin, being the beginning of the end is all due to a lack of organ reserve. So you don't you didn't you didn't really die from the fall. You didn't die from the broken bone. You didn't really even die from the pneumonia. You know, you died for, of congestive heart failure or some other massive failure of an organ because there was not enough reserve there to get you through that massive uh, assault. That is awesome. Thank you so much for clearing up those things and just going into those couple of topics. We'll definitely yeah, you and your rapid you and your rapid fire answers, right? <laughs> well, no, I, yeah, no, definitely no rapid fire. We're gonna have to cut this up into several podcasts, but no. So, thank you yeah. so much because I, I really fascinating concepts, and of course, we'll we will have you back on throughout the year. We're gonna touch on some more of these things. Thank you so much for coming on your own show. Yeah, my pleasure. I'll be to talk with you. All right. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners, no dairy in your life? No problem. Primal Kitchen has you covered with our no dairy vodka sauce made from avocado oil and organic cashew butter so you can ditch the dairy and keep the decadent taste you love. Made without gluten, soy, canola oil, or artificial ingredients, this vegan plant-based sauce is paleo certified. Visit us at primalkitchen.com for more real food options, from dairy-free Alfredo sauce to tomato basil marinara and a whole host of other delicious products the entire family will love. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the Primal Path and want to help others live primally too, then visit primalhealthcoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit primalhealthcoach.com today to learn more.